Welcome to WRTS We Run This Station, the athlete-run podcast channel presented by Uninterrupted. I'm Matt Perret, former professional baseball player, now social media producer here at Uninterrupted, and I'm joined today by Uninterrupted podcast producer John Fontanelli. What's up, Matt? So this is the second installment of Who's Interviewing Who, which is a limited series where athletes and celebrities sit down for an unfiltered roundtable discussion. With the WNBA season in full swing, we thought it would be a perfect time to revisit a conversation from last fall featuring three WNBA star players, Chanae Gumake, Candace Parker, and Angel McCautry, as well as journalist and TV host Jamel Hill. This conversation hits a wide range of topics from police brutality, gender inequality in sports, what compels athletes to use their platforms to promote change, and what can be done to grow the WNBA and the sport of women's basketball. It's such a powerful conversation, and we're excited to share this with you today. Take a listen. So I know we all face a lot of different challenges in our respective professions. Actually, I'm the only non-player here, so, uh, but definitely you ladies in basketball and me in sports media. And I think for me, a big challenge uh, that I face throughout the industry is I think as a woman in this business, you have to prove um, kind of what you aren't before they see what you are. So for me, it's like constantly having to fight stereotypes of who they think you're supposed to be. No, I didn't choose to be a sports writer to date players. No, I didn't choose um, to be a sports writer to be famous. Um, you know, no, I, I didn't. I wasn't hired or didn't get in certain positions because I'm black. So you you go through all those different levels where you're constantly fighting against. Um, sometimes you don't even know what just the perceptions that people have before they finally say, oh. Well, you might actually be pretty good at this. And uh, it can get aggravating because you get tired of feeling like you have to prove yourself over and over again at every single uh, position. Mm -hmm. I think all of us from the first time we started playing sports, whatever age, if it was kickball outside, you faced inequalities. You know, whether it be the little, like you're a girl or you get picked last or anything like that. But I think when I really faced it was when I was pregnant with my daughter. It was people that were shaming me for having a child like at this point in your career like what mm. where you know and it's it's part of of being a woman and it, I don't think it's anything that you should ever have to justify or be ashamed of and so I think for me that was the first time where I was like wait a minute like men don't have to face this in their careers in basketball when they have they can have a family and play and so that was kind of my first real experience. And I totally relate because, I mean, I haven't had a kid yet. I'll say something I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a kid yet, but just when you feel like you're finding yourself as a basketball player, you understand and you understand as well. Um, my injury really humbled me. And a lot of times as athletes, we feel like our worth is in our statistics, our achievements, you know, whether it's tied to winning MVP or winning a championship. But our worth is so much more. And I think that's because we are women, um, because we are capable of doing more than one thing at one time. And in the WNBA, so many of us, you know, we have our degrees and we have platforms and, and we're capable. So when I was injured, it gave me enough separation and distance to realize I am more than an athlete. You know, I'm more than um, what my stats are. Like if I had two points, if I had 30 points, I'm still a human being that has a platform and a voice. And I learned that through my injury, actually, plural, injuries. Right. I think for me, growing up in Baltimore, I was the only girl out there, eight years old, playing with all the guys. So I'm automatically considered a tomboy because a group of girls don't want to play basketball outside. And that's what I dealt with. I remember I beat a boy, I was about 10 years old, beat him one-on-one, -on -one, and his words to me were, this is a man's sport anyway. I just want to play basketball. Why does it have to be about gender? You know, out there playing, you block a shot, everybody goes, oh, why is it a big deal? 
we're, we're all ballers. So I think, you know, that's some of the things I've dealt with. And it, it's just crazy. It, it shouldn't be about anything else, but just being who you are and what you love to do. So how did you all not like internalize the criticism? Like, you know, raise your hand if you've been told to go back to the kitchen. Oh, right? oh my gosh. That is <laughs> that social media. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The guys that can't play. That can't play that are sending these messages Thank from you. their mom's basement for like eating a bowl Tell of cereal in their socks. So what is it so an ego? What, what is it? Is it yeah. an ego thing? Is it that because a woman can play a sport, she seems stronger? Like what like is we, it? We like, beat them in junior high when we were playing co-ed. Like something really internalized with them but but at the same time I, I think it's good because I think that fuels our motivation right like we're out to prove as women that that we, our game is just as valid as the men's mm -hmm. and it goes without saying our game speaks for itself I think it's different and that's what people are having a hard time grasping in this day and age it's funny you look at different platforms that people have and you look at different causes that they fight for um, you know you have black lives matters and you're fighting for race you're fighting for religion but your inequalities are no different than what I'm fighting. If you're fighting for equality, then it's all agendas. Yes. It's all, it, it, it encompasses everything. And for me, I struggle when men of color down women. Yes. And it, it, you can't have especially your cake and eat color. it. Exactly. Yeah. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's what I struggle with, especially on social media. And I always wonder, I'm like, what? You came from a mother. Your mother could have been a trailblazer at her high school playing sports. You could have a daughter. I bet you you'd want your daughter to be a WNBA player, to create a profession for herself, to, you know, create a legacy for you your family. So it's so hypocritical. They mm -hmm. have so many preconceived notions about our game without even knowing it. Yeah. And that's what I was talking to you about earlier. Um, I was on TMZ and I mentioned I want to get paid more in our country than overseas. I never said anything about the NBA, never compared out, I'll pay great to the NBA. But the backlash from that, you'll never make what they make. Go back in the kitchen. You never you said guys, that. I never said anything about comparing myself to any male players. So why do we get, I just don't understand where this comes from. You know, if a woman plays a sport, it should be like, oh, I hope you guys you can know, get what you want. It's because it's socially acceptable for people to not only degrade women, but especially like if you look at the WNBA, because we're WNBA players, we're the melting pot of a lot of things that are marginalized. Women, women of color, and you know, we use our voices and we've never been, you know, afraid to be authentic to ourselves. And I think that's a threat. So people are so comfortable talking about something that they don't know or have yet ignored. But I think we're getting more and more comfortable to talk back, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I notice, uh, it's hard not to notice the fact that uh, you all, uh, your league seems very comfortable speaking out on issues of equality, social justice, all of those. I remind people constantly, it was the Minnesota Lynx. They were the ones that started with the t-shirts after what happened with uh, Philando Castile and obviously the, the police officers being murdered. But um, it, it is always this moment where you have to decide, is this gonna be my fight? So what was your moment for when you decided, hey, I need, I can't just be silent. I mean, I know what my moment was, you know. <laughs> President knows about that, you know. I watched it. Yeah, yeah so. I was very proud we, of that moment. Yeah, uh, but what was, I mean, we all have a moment where we're just like, you know what, enough is enough. So what was your moment? You know, I have a daughter. She's nine years old. And she looks up to everybody that plays sports. These are her aunts. Uh, she watches television. I'll never forget watching her watch Serena. That was the first sporting event that I sat down and watched my with my daughter. Mm -hmm. And seeing that she thinks of, of these, uh, these women as her heroes. And she has other female athletes to look up to. Um, and so I think 
when you realize that and you realize the magnitude and the amount of weight you have on your shoulders to be and to, to have change and to provide that for the next generation, then you realize you have to. And I think for us, it was, um, you know, last year, with the national anthem with, with the president. And um, our team was conflicted in what we were gonna do. We had some people that, you know, wanted to kneel. We had some people that wanted to stand. We had some people that wanted to go in the locker room. And we just came to the agreement that um, we were going to protest, but we were gonna protest in a such together that everybody agreed on. And we all agreed we could go to the locker room and we could stand for the flag. We could kneel, we could do whatever we wanted, not in front of the fans. So we could do anything we wanted back in the locker room right. um, during the anthem. And so that was kind of the agreement that we came to in, you know, in unity. You know what's ironic though? Um, our league is fighting for respect. And we constantly are searching to get fans and to make sure people understand our game is as great as we know it to be, since we're the game. But the biggest splash we had, you know, in the media was when we took a stand or, you know, you know, wore the Black Lives Matter shirts. And the thing is, not everyone agreed. Not everyone understood. But everyone realized that we all have a voice. And as women, we have a platform. And if we can show people that that platform is powerful, then overall, and that we're united, overall, that's the best message we can have. You know, as women, we have an obligation, like leaving a legacy for your daughter, for all young girls who want to play basketball. And we always say, like, we don't play basketball because we want it for the money. Like, we all know that's, right. we know that's, that's not, not the case. case. <laughs> that's not the case. We play because we care for the game and we want the legacy to keep going. We have respect for the game and we're proud to be the only league in 23 years to never fold. That's why we play. It's the platform, it's the community engagement, the involvement we have, like, and just inspiring generations. That's why we play. So it's not unusual for us to take a stand. It's not unusual for us to find a middle ground and, and let people understand our voices. So when we did that, it was only right that that was the message that everyone heard. But you got inspiration from people like her. From you. Oh, okay. No, I'm being honest. <laughs> no, I, no. Feel, I feel like we all talk about inspiring the next generation, but you can be inspired by your peers and you can inspire your peers Absolutely. as well. And it's and contagious. I'm just telling you, it is contagious with what you have done with your voice and and what you have brought and the attention. Well, the, the, the thing, you're in a tricky spot when you're a journalist because um, our role is to sit on the sidelines and document. We're supposed to be the stenographers of history, chronicle what we see and put it into context so that when you pick up a newspaper, I realize people don't do that anymore, but when you read <laughs> about it 20 years later or your phone or whatever contraption we will have invented, that you understand what happened in that time and what that moment was like. and making the conscious decision to kind of leave what was considered to be the traditional behavior of a journalist and say, hold up, I know I'm a journalist, but I'm also a black woman in this country. And I'm a taxpaying citizen. Okay, pay a lot of more taxes than a lot of y'all out there, right? <laughs> in, in Connecticut. In Connecticut, right? I know that, I know that <laughs> you know, so I, I feel like I have just as uh, much of a right to be appalled and to be outraged by some of the things that were happening. Uh, people don't realize love is correction. And the people like Colin Kaepernick, like uh, the players in the WNBA, like you guys at this table, um, if you didn't love America, you wouldn't be so outraged by the things that happened in it. The time to be okay. upset and the time to wonder is when I, we stop caring. Yep. That's when that's when we apathy. don't care about America yep. is apathy, right? But if you're so outraged that you want to see this country be the best version of itself, then that to me is the truest love that you're is. 
that there is because you can't think of anybody in your life that you actually love that you don't want to be better. But here's the thing. I know that we care, but I want to piggyback on what you said. How do we get more people in the stands? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? What do we need to do to get people to care about our league? For example, the number one fan base for football NFL is women. Yeah. Women are going to watch football. Yeah. But why can't we get these women to come to a WNBA yes, game? The, people don't know this, is that uh, a lot of times when you break down the statistics, it's actually a lot of men that do support your game. Yes. And one of the it's things Mormon. that is more men that support viewers. your game. Well, yeah. And I, I know, I, I'm sure you guys do too, but I love that the WNBA players, or not the WNBA, the NBA players ride so hard for you guys. Like well, they, they do. They watch religiously. Day and night, yes. Day and night, and they yes. tweet about it, and they talk about it. But uh, there is a disconnect about women supporting other women. Now, if you want to broaden that out, that is a problem, period. Everywhere. Everywhere. But it's I not just about basketball. Times yeah. are changing. If you look at the support that women are having in this age, you know, this, this coming, um, U.S. women's national team, they fought for better pay and they accomplished that. U.S. women's hockey, they, you know, fought for better pay. And then what did they do? They went and got a gold medal. Um, U.S. Women's Gymnastics just took down a sexual abuser in a glorious fashion. In a, in an, I just, it was just legendary, you know, their, their fearlessness, their courage. And I think, like I say, that makes us not afraid to af- approach, you know, we have a CBA in which we are trying to fight for better pay and better situations for our, our peers. And then also the next level of WNBA talent coming in. So I think this age is not just for one woman or one type of person. It's, it's courage for us all. I mean, look at what's happening with our Supreme Court nominee, you know? Um, it touches all aspects of life. And that's why I'm really excited and proud about, you know, what the future holds because we're no longer afraid. You know, we're not afraid to use our voice. We're not afraid to go march in the streets. We're not afraid to, hey, say, I'm not gonna buy this product because it supports this X, Y, and Z, you know? Women collectively are understanding their power. And I think that's gonna be really beneficial for us because we're looking at women's you know, hockey, we're looking at the national team in soccer, we're looking at gymnasts and saying, if they can do that, we can do that. As WNBA players, where have we lived? I've lived oh in God. Italy, I've lived in China, shoot, I'm from Africa. <laughs> where have you been? I've lived in Turkey for six years, Russia for two years. Russia, Turkey, China. Yeah, we've gone everywhere. I feel like, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to now start my work, you know, following your Mm. footsteps as a broadcaster. (laughs) And you understand that. um, And having the opportunity to try to balance two careers at home in the U.S., I feel like it's a privilege because women's basketball players have to play 24-7. Angel, how do you balance, you know, having two different worlds that you engage with, but you're doing the same job essentially for both? I mean, I think they both have their pros and cons. We're in another country. We're lonely. Everybody saw Love and Basketball, how Monica was when she was like in Spain and she was lonely. Like, that's <laughs> no, kind of- bring it back to women. <laughs> I, mean, I had to bring it back so people can get the visual, you know? It's kind of like that, you know? I'm calling my, my parents. They're calling me three in the morning. I'm like, hey, I have a game tomorrow. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? But um, I think the experience, it's good to have that experience too. Um, I think one thing I've learned um, playing overseas, we always break up things here in America, black and white. And over there, they're like, aren't you all Americans? And that always stuck with me being overseas. It's like, why do we always break things up? Are they confused by kind of our racial politics? Yes, because like, yeah, that that Caucasian person, no, we're all Americans. And that's the one thing that always stuck with me over there because they're they're like, whether you live in France, whether whatever color you are, they're French. You know what I mean? Why can't that be like that in our country? What's it like though, being a black woman though, 
living overseas. Hmm. You find out. You stand out. You, you, <laughs> really? In China. You, you do. <laughs> I think it's more curiosity than like racism, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think it's that they don't like you because you're American. I mean, I lived in Russia and I heard a million things about going over to Russia. I oh, took yeah. my six month old daughter. We packed up our 10 bags because I didn't know if they had formula or <laughs> baby food. You know, you hear all these things about Russia. You're like, oh man, like what's going to happen? We get over there and they're people. They have babies. They go to the grocery store. They want to touch your hair because it's different. They want to touch your yeah. skin, it's but not it's not way, yeah. a bad way. It's just curiosity. curiosity. Right. And I think once you travel, and that is the biggest thing that I want for my daughter, is I want her to be able to travel and see the world. Because when you are able to travel and see the world and make and ha- form your own opinions about things instead of what the news is telling you. Oh, yes. Or oh, what yeah. other people are telling you. You realize that topic. people are people. People are people. people. We were over in China. Layla's sitting there learning how to eat chopsticks. She's learning Chinese words. Right. Saying all these things. And it's like you realize they can't communicate with her. So they don't speak in English. She doesn't speak Mandarin. But they're talking and they're people and they're communicating. And so I think when you travel... You learn about life and you learn about what's important. But because you guys are basketball, you know, been playing basketball your whole life. I mean, surely even in this country, there were times where you probably were living in two worlds because your basketball was probably taking you someplace that was separating you from like your friends in your neighborhood or that kind of thing. Because if you're any kind of high achiever and you're black, you're going to be separated from the group. Right. And so you're going to either be in an advanced class or you're going to, you know, maybe even go to a different school or maybe a private school. You're going to get into a different environment. So you have this juggling act between being this one thing in this particular world, um, a more mainstream world. Right. And then you're going to have this one thing where, you know, you with the homies and chilling and everybody you grew up with. So how did you guys like kind of balance those worlds even as you were growing up and progressing? See, I'm really fortunate because I consider myself Nigerian American. My parents were born and raised in Nigeria, but I was born and raised in the U.S. And I call that the best of both worlds because it gives me perspective. So I have the opportunity that America affords, but I also have the cultural heritage. I know where I'm from, my family from generation to generation to generation. We're Wakandan, you know, Nigerian. (laughs) You know, and, and I'm so proud of it. So I have a strong sense of identity and I actually sort of look at America from at times an outsider's perspective, um, because I've learned that while everyone outside of the world is, is recognized and identified by where they are from, located on a map, Americans are identified by ideology, you know, our beliefs, our mm. fundamental core ideas about life, you know, freedom, happiness, ability to, to have an opportunity to, you know, build out your dreams. And to me, that's a beautiful thing. And I think sometimes that gets lost. So being able to go back to Nigeria and engage there and also, you know, bring my sisters back and and then sports. I mean, the platform that sports, sports can transform lives. Growing up in Houston, Texas, my big sis, Neka and I, I mean, we we were thrust into basketball. Wearing jorts, glasses, with glasses <laughs> protectors, like literally the last girls that you would ever think would be in the WNBA, those were us, but then we were beanstalks, we grew. And sports transformed our lives. You know what it's like, you get a scholarship, Next thing you know, you have dreams. I mean, you've probably had dreams being a professional athlete because your brothers were like, you're going to be nothing but great. (laughs) You're going to be nothing but great. But, you know, that journey, our lives were completely changed by having the opportunity to play basketball at a high level. And I feel extremely grateful for that because when I go back to Africa and I see young girls who don't have that opportunity but have the same dreams, to me, that's unfair. 
So um, we're really blessed. You know, we're very, very blessed. And, and I really see those two worlds and I see so much potential um, for everyone. Uh, I think it, it could be a real identity struggle um, depending on where you're from, especially if you're from the inner city. I'm from Detroit, right? So my high school was 99% black. We had one white dude that was in our high school. And um, shamefully, uh, he got his ass beat every day. Um, <laughs> and so we had one. And then, so that was my entire environment, was just only being really around black people. Uh, fast forward, I go to Michigan State. I had never seen that many white people in my life. <laughs> I was like, ooh, ooh all y'all. I mean, I knew they existed, of course. So I wasn't that naive. But I've always, you know, believed that one of the things that's interesting about racial dynamics in our country is that I was running into uh, white people at Michigan State who had never been around black people, wow. which seemed to be very impossible because I was like, not at the bank or something? Like, right. the store? <laughs> say none of us? Right? And then, uh, you know, even though I came from a rather segregated environment, it's like I would see white people. I knew where they were. I mean, they were at least in a professional capacity. You were going to run into them. But to go to college and then get the experience of not just, um, you know, being classmates with people who are white, you know, had white sweet mates and just you know, kind of suddenly being thrust into an entirely different world. So it's like, oh, I had my Detroit upbringing mm -hmm. and knew what that was like. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, a keg stand? Don't know if I know about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you're flipping upside you know, right? Exactly. You were like pulling out the spades. Yeah, and, they were like, and they're like, wait, what are we doing? <laughs> I and declare. Girl, and, uh, and everybody, you know, at college has those kind right. of cultural <laughs> moments yes. Yes. where yep, you yep. start talking about hair and it's like, so we use grease. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's called Dax. <laughs> <laughs> and or Blue Magic. Our makes it straight. Right, exactly. Our makes it curly. All those conversations. So it's just interesting how um, we have to constantly be forced to adapt. And uh, I think that's just kind of the responsibility or burden of people of color because it's not the opposite burden. Like they don't necessarily have to adapt to us because they can stay segregated. We can't. If we ever want to blossom outside of whatever world that we've created for ourselves. So the movie that Hate You Give, um, it's a very complicated story. It, it's a coming of age story, but it's also a coming of age story that's marred by a tra tragic event uh, when the lead character, Star Carter, witnesses something tragic that happens to a friend of hers at the hands of the police. Um, you know, we're all aware of all the things that have been happening in this country with police brutality. Uh, so how important, you know, kind of is a movie like this that shows the complicated dynamics of the relationship between people of color and the police. And just even uh, when you see something wrong and your ability to speak out, how that can be hindered by the circumstances around you. I think when you see this film in some way, shape or form, you can relate. And I think when you're able to relate to something that sparks discussion and change. Understanding. And I know for me, when I'm going through the news and I'm seeing, you know, um, young, African-Americans dying, I see my nephews. Like when I think of names, Trayvon Martin, I see my nephew, you know? And I think when you have a film like this, you know, it, it creates discussions. It creates discussions like this. And that's important because, you know, we know what the cause is and we know what we're all fighting for, which is equality, but how do we get there? And I think it's through films like this that are, allowing people the courage to speak up and to know when, what is right and what is wrong. And, and, you know, 
piggybacking off of that, I also like, I don't even have brothers, um, but I have uncles and I have friends and I consider them brothers. And, and even just the fact of, you know, knowing that my dad, he's like, okay, he's going to go run out, go jog. I'm happy for you, dad, you know, get your steps in. Um, but then I wonder like, okay, dad, you know, don't wear your sweatshirt. You know, what do you, what do you like the fact that we have these concerns? Um, it just really shows me that, you know, we have opportunities for growth and understanding and um, you know, finding a way to meet in the middle so that we can actually create change, right? Uh, but the number one thing about this film that really inspired me was the name, The Hate You Give. Mm. Have you thought about the hate you give? What is the energy that you're giving out in this world? Why should it be hate? The young girl star, she, she could feel hate, remorse for what she had to endure, but what good does that do? And that comes to our platforms. The hate you give the world, the energy you give to the world ends up becoming our world. Um, so I think just manifesting that hate and changing that into power and productivity um, and, and just, you know, light, right? I mean, for generations and centuries, there's been a lot of deeply rooted hate and this film makes it a little bit more relatable for people to understand why. And um, to me, that's, that's a good learning lesson. Yeah. I'm really excited to see the film and how it's gonna turn out. It actually reminds me, she was a witness to a murder in the film. And it reminds me of a story that recently just happened in Baltimore where I'm from. A young girl witnessed a, a double homicide and she played basketball, 22 years old. And those guys got out of jail. She was gonna um, be a witness and do the right thing and testify, and they shot her up. Mm. And just to compare it to the movie, she was a witness to a murder, so you gotta look at that side too. What do you do in those situations? We don't think like, you know what I mean? Do mm. I wanna you know, hide somewhere, save my life? I'm in this situation, I got all this hate, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm really excited to see how that, how that turns out, and we need a movie like this. We need to talk about these issues. We can't hide these issues anymore, so I think it's... I'm, I'm, I'm struck mostly by the humanity of it and the... Um, the layers. I mean, I think a lot of times when we read these headlines that are similar to this this story that's told in the movie, we think of it in terms of um, okay, um, who's alive and who's dead, right? right? But there is a ricochet effect that happens. So here you have a young girl that witnessed something brutal at a young age that right. will mark her for the rest of her life. Her life. You have um, a young man's life who was lost. You have a community that suffered. You have the tragic. Um, reminders of history and how there's always been this layer of tension between people of color and the police. So there's um, many of us who do not even feel safe in the company of the people who are supposed to be protecting us. Right. So it's not, it's just more to it than I think a lot of times gets discussed in, uh, in the media. And so at least this film is an opportunity for people to understand the layers and the complications that go along with this issue. And hopefully um, they will have a little bit more empathy because that's what always strikes me with a Trayvon Martin, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, because it's not just men out there that have to worry about it, it's also women, um, is that the lack of empathy for people of color and how they feel in those situations as being targets of the police, um, a, a government-sanctioned body. That's why people always say this is a, gover uh, a government-sanctioned killing when those things happen because... There's not many people in our society who have the license to kill. The police is one of them. 
And so um, I, I'm, I think that's the part I think that's most impressive about this is being able to tell a story that has so much baggage in a way that I think we can all just relate and, and kind of empathize with. But, you know, what also is kind of striking about it is the young lady in particular, she may not have had a traditional platform, like we all have traditional platforms, but nevertheless, she chose to use it in a way that was meaningful. Was there, I mean, what made you guys kind of decide that you wanted your platform to stand for something than, as you pointed out before, just being an athlete? Because everybody doesn't do that. So like, what was it about, you know, what internally compelled you to say, you know what, I'm Candace Parker and I'm gonna do this. I think you have that voice inside of you that tells you what's right and what's wrong. That you know the time, you know that from the time you're young, they tell you, include everybody, share with everybody, make sure everybody gets an equal slice of whatever from the time you're little. And those are the lessons that I'm telling and, and reiterating to my daughter every day. But then now she's asking me questions about the president. She's coming home and asking me questions about the police. And I know that division is happening because I know the police kids are coming home and they're asking their parents these same questions. And so where, where, does it, where does it end? Where does it stop? Like at what point are we gonna come together and listen to each other and really have come from a place of empathy? And so I think for me, when I knew it was time to take that stance and do what was right was, you know, when you see a divide, you see the hate. You know, it's time to bring something to the table. And I think all of us got tired of that. And talking about voice, I mean, I think our voice matters. And and for me, like, I think everyone wants to be authentic to who they are. You had a choice and you chose to be authentic to who you are. We, as WNBA players, are trying to brand our game to be as authentic as it can be. Um, for me personally, I think a lot of times people see us and see immediate labels woman, you know, African-American, tall, like, you know, that's what we see, but that's not necessarily who we are. Um, but we go through these unique life situations that define who we are. And it's on us to use our voices and to share those journeys so that people can learn from it, right? So like my personal journey is just, is just that, you know, I've dealt with injuries. I've dealt with being the other. I grew up in Texas, you know, you know, daughter of immigrants and and then fly out to California, then now in Connecticut and and had a choice. OK, how are you going to, you know, brand yourself? How are you going to image yourself? Who do you want to be according to people as a professional? And I just want to be me. I just want to be authentically myself. And I want to share with people what I'm passionate about and and what affects me and what hurts me and what I feel like our society has the potential to be. I see that in Star's Journey. I see that in every young kid who has a goal of, you know, having a dream and becoming a doctor or or a lawyer or who cares, a basketball player or a DJ, whatever you want to be, um, that's their goal. But we have things in society, whether it's, you know, our misunderstandings with police that that tends to impede kids from even achieving those things. And um, I think it's just, you know, sticking true to who you are and your journey and, and being fearless. But that does come with consequence. Um, but nonetheless, everyone's story is powerful. And I know there's situations in society that make telling your story very difficult. Comes at a cost, like you mentioned to the young girls in the young girl in Baltimore, it comes at a cost. But I think that's why you see, you know, this time of courageous women and courageous different people, you know, stepping up and sharing because it's it's the only way you really can live.
Thanks for listening to Who's Interviewing Who on WRTS. For more great uninterrupted podcasts, subscribe to WRTS, give us a rating, and check out Film Study, a podcast that I produce and host alongside Super Bowl champ turned Hollywood producer Spencer Pacinger and his producing partner Dane Mork. Tune in next week for another edition of Who's Interviewing Who on the Uninterrupted Podcast Network. <laughs>